Thank you, Boyd. This is a story in Joshua 6 I remember hearing from when I was little. Um, the story of Jericho. We sing the songs, and I don't know that I fully appreciate what these people did. Um, and we'll go into that a little more. Just as they had to walk around this city in this very obscure way to capture a city. If you study military tactics, this is not how you do it. It's just backwards. But I think it ultimately goes to show, and what God wanted to show, this was not the people that were doing it. This was the God behind them that was doing it. And so just keep that in mind, because this is a very familiar story. It's easy for familiar stories to get so familiar. It's like, yes, they walk around seven times, the walls fell down. Okay. They walked around the city seven days in a row, six days in a row with absolutely nothing happening. The walls aren't quivering. They're not beginning to fall down. You aren't seeing progress. And they had the faith in God to keep doing it and keep doing it and keep doing it. So at the end of chapter 5, Joshua is looking at Jericho. And as you look through the context of the story, it's possible that he is looking at this city trying to figure out how he's going to take it. He's doing reconnaissance. The spies have told him certain things. But ever since the spies left in chapter 2, in verse... Um, where is that? Chapter 2 and verse 5, about verse 5, when the spies went out, when the people went out to chase the spies, they shut the gate. They're like, okay, someone infiltrated in, basically no one in, no one out. And we see that again in chapter 6, verse 1. Jericho was securely shut up because of the children of Israel. None went in and none came out. They didn't have to worry about anything. They had their walls. They didn't have to worry about anything physically speaking. They had their walls. There was a spring that served the city inside the walls, so they had all the water they needed. And Jericho chapter, or, there we go again. Joshua chapter two. Um, it talks when it talks about her having the flax on the roof, and then it talks about the Jordan River being at overflow stage, this was the harvest time. So they had brought in grain, they had it in the city, they were walled up, they could stand against Israel. I mean, Rahab recognized that it was futile to try that. So they shut the city off, they're ready to make a stand. So Joshua's figuring out how to do this, and God sends his commander to Joshua at the end of five. And Joshua asks him, are you for us or against us? And the commander says, we're not talking about that. I'm coming as the commander of the Lord. Are you going to be on God's side? And maybe it stems from that conversation that God then tells Joshua how to take Jericho. Look, this is not about your way. Are you going to be willing to do it God's way? And God's way was going to be different. Chapter 6, verse 1 through 5. Now Jericho was securely shut up because of the children of Israel. None went in. And none went out. And the Lord said to Joshua, See, I have given Jericho into your hand, its king and the mighty men of valor. You shall march around the city, all you men of war. You shall go around the city once, 
you shall do this six days. And seven priests shall bear seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark. But the seventh day you shall march around the city seven times, and the priests shall blow on the trumpets. It shall come to pass when they make a long blast with the ram's horn. And when you hear the sound of the trumpet, all the people shall shout with a great shout, and the wall of the city will fall down flat, and the people shall go up, every man straight before him. They've done some archaeology in Jericho. And it's just interesting some of the things they had they noticed as they're digging in the ruins. So this city would have been, as they see the walls as they sit now, to walk around it, it would have been about a half mile. So in order to walk around it once, you're doing about a half mile walk. They also noticed that the way the walls were stacked up, that they basically had this base wall at the bottom that served as a foundation, the retaining wall, and that was about 12 feet high. So you're already talking a decent sized wall, but that's just the retaining wall. There was another wall on top of that that was another 20 feet tall. And then it went up an embankment, and if that wasn't enough, there was another wall at the top of the embankment. And so as they calculated, if you were standing on the ground, the top of the top wall would have been about 46 feet above your head. God seems to indicate this in Deuteronomy 9 as Moses is talking to the people. Moses is telling them, you're going to come into the city. You're going to come into the land. It's going to be very fruitful. But you're going to see walls that reach to the heavens. You're going to see some tall walls. You're going to see some cities that you can't take. And so imagine being Joshua. You're there looking at this wall, trying to figure out how to get in because the gate's shut. It's not a wall you can just climb up. It's not a wall you can just go through. Um, in certain places, they said the wall was about six feet thick. So this is not a wall you're just going to knock over. And God's saying, you're going to do it my way. And so you're going to walk around it once a day for six days. And you're going to have priests that are going around it. They're going to be blowing trumpets. But otherwise, we'll see later, you aren't going to be making a sound. You're just going to have these priests blowing the trumpets continuously as you walk a half mile around the city. And imagine doing that for six days. You come up out of your camp. You wake up early in the morning. You walk around a, about a half mile around the city and all you hear is the sound of a horn and you're just walking and walking and walking in silence. It would be tempting to begin thinking physically, how is this going to accomplish anything? How is this wall going to come down? God has already made them wait. We see they cross the river. Okay, let's take the land. No, you're going to be circumcised. You're going to start fresh. Okay, we got a fresh start. Okay, let's take the city. Now you're going to walk around it. Six days. And Joshua, to his credit, in verses 1 through 5, that's what the Lord tells him. If you do this, the walls will fall down. There's, it doesn't say anything about the people touching the wall or hitting the wall or doing anything from their point of view that would cause this wall to fall down. And he just says, you're going to walk and if you do it, the walls will fall down. 
the people, as they're walking, can't see that. They can't know that for sure. I mean, what's going to be at the end of this walk? Are the walls going to fall down or are they not? It would have taken an immense amount of faith to do this consistently and not complain. We see Israel as as God is leading them through the wilderness. Just complaining after complaining after complaining when things don't make sense, when they don't seem to see a way. We, we often sing the song, God will make a way when there seems to be no way. God's making a way when there's not a way. And he's asking the people, this is not about, am I on, are, am I on your side or the opponent's side? Are you going to be on my side? And so Joshua chapter 6, he's gotten this message. We aren't told much about it. And he then goes to the people. Verse 6. Then Joshua the son of Nun called the priests and said to them, Take up the Ark of the Covenant and let seven priests bear seven trumpets of ram's horns before the Ark of the Lord. And he said to the people, Proceed and march around the city and let him who is armed advance before the Ark of the Lord. As... God is talking to Joshua. He lets him know, I have given Jericho into your hands, verse 2. The walls hadn't fallen down yet. They were still secure. They were still safe. God says, I have given it into your hand. Uh, We see God's grace in this. They didn't deserve the city. They hadn't done anything to achieve the city. God was going to give them the city, but there was a condition that they needed to follow. There was obedience that took it. And we're going to see a lot of the number seven here. Again, seven priests bearing seven trumpets. You're going to walk around the city seven days. On the seventh day, you're going to walk around the city seven times. It's just kind of interesting that the continuation of seven... This is not the only time we see seven. God uses seven different times. We may think of the story of Naaman. Go dip in the Jordan River seven times. It's kind of interesting. And Naaman's thing is the Jordan River. It's a muddy river. Why that river? But seven times. We'll get back to Naaman in a second. It's just kind of interesting that just seven throughout this text. And then Joshua simply tells the people what God told him to do. Joshua got the message. He didn't change it. He didn't edit it. He simply told them. And we see that attitude in Joshua back in chapter 5, verse 14. As the commander's talking to him, Joshua says, What does my Lord say to his servant? We see that attitude in Joshua. Whatever the Lord says, that's what we're going to do. So Joshua tells the priests, and they prepare to march around the city. Any thoughts? Boy. You, you see some of the same things that you saw back when they crossed the river. I mean, the ark goes first. I'm wondering, is it still 2,000 feet ahead of, the, of everybody? That's interesting, right? About that right, and in this, he also seems to have a guard in front of them as we keep reading through the text. He actually puts soldiers in front of them and soldiers behind them, and then the ark just kind of does he leave the space like Boyd asked it's it's interesting it's interesting that God doesn't in this 
time. Bob? Just a, a thought about, <clears throat> I, th I think about Israel here, the second, this is the second generation, and they're setting out, you know. When the first generation set out, it was short order, they were complaining about stuff, you know. And, and, and you think about it, the first generation, what have they seen? They'd seen the part of the Red Sea, they'd seen all the miracles uh, that took place in Egypt. Uh, these folks, the second generation, they, they've just seen the water of the Jordan stack up. So all these things are in their mind. Uh, but we don't hear the complaining. This, this tells us something about the people. Right. They're more convinced, they're more dedicated, they're trusting the Lord. And they're not complaining on the seventh trip around on the seventh day, you know. Right. <clears throat> yes. Well, I was just thinking about the number of people this would involve. So the census gives you a number of about 600,000 600, men of fighting age able to go out to war. And we know that a few were left on the east side of the Jordan. But for the most part, you know, that's... And I'm just trying to think of if you're moving a troop of people, how long would that column be, you know, however many broad and... and, and so, I mean, that's a lot of people to move around and kind of kind of impressive, I would, I would imagine, to people from Jericho who were looking out their windows going, I don't think I like the new neighbors. I just, yeah, this wasn't like you walk out of your house into your front yard, walk down your road, and you walk a half mile. Like, this took some mobilizing, this took some organizing, and you're doing it time and time again with no visual changing on the city. The city's still standing, the walls are still there, they're as big as ever, and they just keep doing it. And they don't complain, Bob, like you mentioned. We see Israel, God, <laughs> in, in the Exodus, God calls them out, God takes them across the Red Sea, and immediately they start complaining when they don't have food. And it's just like, God is helping these people along. Just very patient, very loving. He's like, just have faith in me. Just believe. Just show your faith by obeying. Any other thoughts? So we'll continue in verse 8. So Joshua's gotten the message from the Lord. He's delivered that message to the priest and now he's going to speak to the people. Verse 8, So it was when Joshua had spoken to the people that the seven priests bearing the seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark of the Lord advanced and blew the trumpets and the ark of the covenant followed them. Then the armed men went before the priest who blew the trumpets and the rear guard came after the ark while the priest continued blowing the trumpets. Now Joshua had commanded the people, saying, You shall not shout or make any noise with your voice, nor shall a word proceed out of your mouth until the day that I say to you, Shout, and then you shall shout. So we had the ark of the Lord circle the city, going around it once, and they came into the camp and lodged in the camp. And Joshua rose early in the morning, and the priests took up the ark of the Lord. Then the seven priests bearing seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark of the Lord went on continually and blew with the trumpets. 
And the armed men went before them, but the rear guard came after the ark of the Lord while the priests continued blowing the trumpets. And the second day they marched around the city once and returned to the camp, so they did six days. It's kind of interesting. If you read, as you look through that, they're just doing the same thing over and over again. It's almost like the verses are repeating over and over again. And it's exactly what the Lord told Joshua. The people are doing exactly what the Lord told them to do. And I think that's part of the point of the redundancy. Sometimes we want to break the trend of, you know what, we've always done something this way. Let's, let's vary it up. These people did exactly what the Lord did every day. Every day for the first couple days. And they're not seeing anything strange. They're getting up, and in fact, in verse 12, they're rising up early in the morning. When I get up early in the morning, it's usually for a purpose, and there's usually a goal. And the idea is at the end of the day, that goal's met, right? Rarely do many of us wake up in the mor- early in the morning and are just like, you know what, I'm feeling it. I'm just, I don't have anything to do today. I'm just going to wake up early. Maybe there are some that do that, but that's not the natural the natural thing to do, Bob. I'm just going to try to picture, picture that. Yeah, I, I, can't, I can't picture for sure. I, when I read this, I can't, I can't figure out how big that entourage is walking around the city and what all that would look like. But uh, I know if, that if I were, I were there, it would be obvious to me at the end of the day when my legs were tired and my back was aching and I was heading back to the camp, uh, I would say, we did what the Lord wanted us to do. Nothing happened. Uh, at the end of the sixth day, there'd be the same report. So, if if there's nothing else being taught, is that you can't take this city, and that is being burned into their minds that no matter what we do, those walls stand tall. And you know the people were on top of the walls looking at him and pointing and shaking their fingers at him. But when God acted, oh, what a glorious day that was. And all the sore legs and and aching backs uh, from the traveling and and obeying the Lord uh, would be forgotten just like that. Great point. The Lord took care of any complaining on the way around. I was going to say, I did some quick math, and so if you have 600,000 men and you march them 100 men abreast, um, and you only give them a foot, so they're like this, that would make a column about a mile and a half long. If you want them to actually be able to breathe, you're talking like a column three miles long, 100 men wide, going around a half a mile of a city. So it's going to look like it never ends for quite a while. Yeah. And assume, I'm assuming that they went out in battle gear and said that... Well, I mean, when in, in the Old Testament, oftentimes, what did a trumpet signal? What was the purpose of a trumpet? Going to war. Going to war, it was a warning. Mm-hmm. We see here about God saying, if the trumpeter doesn't blow when he sees something coming... Hey, warning, you're in the city, you're preparing for attack because you know the spies have come in, you know they've left with a report because you didn't catch them. 
So you don't know what they've told. So you have, you're paying special attention. You hear the trumpets and this group of people just begins walking around the city. Day one, you're kind of like, that's a little weird. Day two, that's a little weird. Day three, what are these people doing? Day four, are you having trouble finding the gate? Day five, are those just toy trumpets? Day six, you know your swords are there for a purpose. Like, imagine what the people in the city are thinking. They're thinking, yeah, okay, yes, they've heard of how God's delivered. But yet these people, there's nothing fancy about it. They're just, walk, just walking around the city. And at what point, if you're in the city, do you just start, just stop paying attention? Maybe day five, you're like, oh, it's them again. They're just walking around the city. Don't, don't bother going to the post. And then the seventh day, we'll get there in a minute. Um, but Joshua rose early in the morning. It's kind of interesting. We see this phrase throughout the Old Testament when people of God had faith in God and were given a task. Abraham in Genesis 22, when God calls him to sacrifice Isaac, he rises early in the morning. Moses in Exodus 34, when God tells him to make a second copy of the tablets of stone. Moses rises early in the morning. Gideon rises early in the morning in Judges 7. Samuel rises early in 1 Samuel 15. And Hezekiah, when he's going to restore worship, rises early in 2 Chronicles 29. All of those people in those instances had been given a task by God, and they didn't wait. They didn't drag their feet. They rose early in the morning and did what God told them to do. Any other thoughts? Jesus rose early in the morning. We see that a couple of times when Jesus rises early in the morning. And especially as he's busy with other things, he's mindful of his task, he's communicating with the God, his Father that sent him. Jesus' task wasn't easy either. I mean, Israel in this case didn't get distracted. They only had to do this seven days. Jesus came to do a task that took him years. And he kept the focus because he kept in contact with his father. So verse 15, it tells, verse 14 told us they're doing it six days. So the seventh day comes and it seems like it's normal. Verse 15 again, but it came to pass on the seventh day that they rose early. There's our phrase again. About the dawning of the day and marched around the city seven times in the same manner. Only that day they marched around the city seven times. And the seventh time it happened when the priest blew the trumpets that Joshua said to the people, Shout, for the Lord has given you the city. Now the city shall be doomed by the Lord to destruction, it and all who are in it, only Rahab the harlot shall live, she and all who are with her in her house, because she hid the messengers that we sent. And you, by all means, abstain from the accursed things, lest you become cursed when you take it, and make the camp of Israel a curse and trouble it. But all the silver and gold, the vessels of bronze and iron, are consecrated to the Lord. They shall come into the treasury of the Lord." So the people shouted when the priest blew the trumpets, and it happened when the people heard the sound of the trumpet that the people shouted with a great shout, and the wall fell down flat. Then the people went up, every man into the city, straight before him, and they took the city. 
again, they rose up early. And God says the city's doomed for destruction. Everything in it, except for a few things. It's interesting that God wants everything destroyed. You weren't going to take anything. Again, this is another thing where this was not common for the day. When you took a city, part of the benefit and reward of you taking that city or taking that place was you got the stuff. So you got the oxen, you got the food, you got the servants, you got the sheep, you got the donkey, you got what was in the city. And God says, not this time. Again, just the faith it had to take. The people are excited about coming into the land. They're excited about getting the city. And God says, you're going to wait, and you're not going to take anything. And these people, are, as they're going through the city, they are seeing nice things. And we're about to see in chapter 7, someone saw nice things. They were going to see nice things. This was not because God was like, this was a poor city, and there was nothing you want in it. No, there would be things you would want. Do you have the faith to trust God not to take anything? This is the first city. You might celebrate, but you're going to wait. Yeah. A test, it's a test. When we, this whole picture here, the whole, the whole account, is a test of and demonstration of obedient faith. Timeless. That doesn't change, does it? It doesn't change. And we see this in stories throughout the Old Testament. We see it throughout stories in the New Testament. We see it today. God is looking for people of faith that are just simply willing to do what he says. To the T, to the letter. Even when it doesn't make sense. It's illogical. It's impossible. Fill in the other words we might use as we think through things that God might have us do. That makes no sense. Why would I do that? Just have faith. Just do it. So it, it just occurred to me that one of these days, whether it was the seventh day or not, one of these days was a Sabbath. And so, the, I mean, the idea of let's not do any work, and the only thing we're going to do is we're going to march around the city, whether that's one time or seven times, whether there's battle at the end or not. But it just occurred to me that one of those days would have been a Sabbath day. So it would have been kind of an exception to the Sabbath day rule, but if you're following what God wants you to do, whether it's just, you know. Yeah, and maybe. Maybe it was less than the Sabbath day's journey. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. I thought about yeah. that, but yeah. <laughs> Can't walk that far. Okay, right there. <laughs> yeah. Draw a line in the sand. Yeah. And God says there's certain things that he wants. The silver, the gold, the vessels of bronze and iron. And it mentions a word. Uh, let's see, where is that? The New King James says, But all the silver and gold and vessels of the bronze and iron are consecrated to the Lord. Your version may say something different. So that word, as the interlinear tells us, is Kodesh. I don't speak Greek. That's Greek with a southern accent. Kodesh, or something like that. Holy. It is interesting because that is the same word you see in chapter 5 in verse 15 when God says, take your shoes off because the place you are standing is holy. It's also the same word in Exodus 3 and verse 5 when Moses is at the burning bush. And God tells Moses, take off your shoes 
take off your sandals because the place you are standing is holy. So that's the same word in all of those three instances. It's kind of interesting. God told Joshua, this is holy ground. This is consecrated ground. So there would be things that would be consecrated to God. And we'll get we'll see something else a bit later. Um, and so God lets them know what's going to happen. There's going to be punishments if you take something. God says, don't take anything. Verse 18. And in a couple different versions. So the New King James says, By you, by all means, abstain from the accursed things, lest you become accursed when you take of the accursed things and make the camp of Israel a curse and trouble it. You see curse all throughout that. The New Living Do not take any of the things set apart for destruction, or you yourselves will be completely destroyed, and you will bring trouble on the camp of Israel. New American Standard, But as for you, only keep yourselves from the things designated for destruction, so that you do not covet them and take some of the designated things and turn the camp of Israel into something designated for destruction and bring disaster on it. God's pretty clear here. (laughs) There's no gray area. He's like, don't take anything. If you take anything, not only will you bring trouble upon yourself, it's kind of interesting. You're going to bring trouble upon all of Israel. (laughs) What do you see in that? What we do affects others. Yes. Yeah. I was just thinking that uh, we've been discussing how the Israelites aren't actually doing anything to deserve the spoils. Uh, I mean, they did the fighting, but God provided the city to them, so God deserves the spoils, not the people. Because God's the one that's taking the city. Right. Phil, did I see you? I would think that this whole experience was somewhat unifying. They're you know marching around kind of probably trying to think of you know kind of with it, some of the things you've shared why 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 this and in in this statement they're unified together and they're um, taking of the plunder or not taking of the plunder I guess right Bob uh, <clears throat> the consequences of sin is oftentimes collateral among those that are around. Uh, it affects other people. It's a very large scale affecting here. But uh, clearly, uh, God prescribed it. He, or he said it before them and educated them ahead of time. And it was also, would have to be a un, kind of a unifying thing also to have the people of one mind that they, they should be looking out for one another's interests, uh, therefore refraining from transgressing God's will. Yeah. And this idea of if someone sinned, God would punish everyone. <laughs> like, how much more does that want to make you look out for the people around you <laughs> as you're going through the city? And you're not doing it in a way to be haughty, and you're not doing it in a way to be prideful and say, I'm better than you, don't take this stuff. 
But in a way, like, look, we are working together. We're both obeying God. We're both trying to seek Him. Let's just obey. Don't take this stuff. Boyd, you look at your... I was just, uh, as we studied this today, I was also reading an article by uh, Gary Henry where he was commenting on Jesus' words to Peter, James, and John in Gethsemane. Uh, why did you? Why do you sleep? Rise and pray, lest you enter into temptation. Luke twenty-two forty-six. And then his comment was, "God is of course the greatest of all great causes, and if He is to get from us the attention He deserves, we must be unflinchingly honest about where we've been, where we're ready, where we really are, and where we truly want to go." It will take time and patience, but we can, if we choose, acquire the character that it takes to take God seriously. I mean, they were taking God seriously. And how many t- times do we see God talk about the seriousness of disobedience? I mean, when they're on the mountain with Moses and they're hearing about the blessings and cursings in Deuteronomy, how many times does God say, if you do good, you will be blessed? If you don't do good, you will be punished. And not only punished, the land's going to be punished. Everything around you is going to be punished. It's not going to be a fun time for anyone. God takes disobedience seriously. And also, we hear in the New Testament, read the New Testament, righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a reproach to any people. That's been the case forever. God is always looking for people that are going to be righteous, that are going to be righteous for their nation, that are going to be righteous for their city. I mean, we see God talking to Abraham when he's talking about the city of Sodom and Gomorrah. And God's told Abraham, look, the city's wicked. I'm going to destroy it. And Abraham talks to God and God says, if there are 10 righteous people, I will not destroy it. 10 people doing right could have saved that city. God is looking for Israel to obey. He's looking for everyone to obey. And the harsh reality is when there's disobedience, there's consequences not only for the person doing and being disobedient, but for those around them. And we see that come true in chapter 7. Because someone coveted, he says, I saw something and it was looked good and I coveted it. He was never able to use it because he buried it in the ground. But yet he and his whole family were destroyed. And 36 soldiers died in the battle. I believe it was 36 or it was some number like that. Soldiers died in the battle. People lost their lives because of disobedience that had nothing to do with the disobedience. God treats it seriously. Thanks be to God, though, for grace and mercy. And we see that with Israel. How many times did he say, look, you have sinned, but my arms are open. I'm reaching out to you, calling you back. And really, as the people are doing this, there's really three ways they can obey. They can obey completely. Absolutely, we're going to do it, that God says. They can obey the whole time grumbling and complaining about it. Like, ah, did you notice that really nice cloak? in that house with the purple shutters. Like, man, that was a really nice... Like, they were seeing nice things. And yet, they couldn't touch it. 
Have faith in God. It's kind of interesting. The second city they took, God said, you can. You can take the things out of that city. And maybe also you see this idea of first fruits. God talked to them multiple times as we see in the law about what are you giving to God? Are you giving the first things or are you giving the last things? Maybe this was a lesson. It's kind of interesting. Give the first things to God. And then God will provide what you need. Yes? Verse 17 kind of points to that. And, and all that is in it belongs to the Lord. It's, it is kind of like they were, it was all dedicated to God. Right, and it also goes back to when God told them before they even started walking around the city, I've given Jericho into your hands. God owns all this stuff. God owns more than we realize. I mean, once they crossed um, over the Jordan, they were circumcised, the manna stopped, and God gave them the produce of the land. God has warehouses that are just amazing. Give God what's due Him. Give Him obedience. And he blesses those. So they utterly destroyed everything except for the silver and gold, the vessels of bronze and iron, and Rahab and her family. It's kind of interesting as they were, again, doing some of the excavation of the city. So the way the wall was built, something like this. So you essentially had the people are down here. And so there was really no easy way to get up to the city, but when it says the wall fell flat, Archaeology shows that this wall basically just fell in and it created a pile and they were just able to walk up. And again, this thing was about 12 feet high, so they were just able to walk up into the city. It's kind of interesting as they're digging, they see evidence that this top wall of brick has fallen over the retaining wall. Again, we don't need evidence to believe in God, but it's interesting when... People that don't even believe in God that do digging are just noticing, hey, it looks like a wall fell and created a ramp. God is amazing as the way he tells what happened. When you look, it's, it's exactly what happens. We can trust God in what he says. But one of the other things they noticed as they're looking through the rubble, there's about three feet of ash over all the city. The city is essentially buried three feet deep in burned stuff. They burned the whole city with fire. And in that, they found grain. They found food. They found resources that normally you would take that, not surprisingly, were left because they belonged to God. And they were still buried under rubble to this day. It happened in the mid-1900s. When they found that, there was grain that had been there since the city was burned. And so Joshua, the city's about to be burned. And Joshua, verse 22, But Joshua said to the men who had spied out the country, Go into the harlot's house, and from there bring out the woman and all that she has as you swore to her. 
And the young men who had been spies went in and brought out Rahab, her father, her mother, her brothers, and all that she had. So they brought out all her relatives and left them outside the camp of Israel. But they burned the city and all that was in it with fire, only the silver and gold and the vessels of bronze and iron they put into the treasury of the house of the Lord. And Joshua spared Rahab the harlot, her father's household, and all that she had. So she dwells in Israel to this day, because she hid the messengers whom Joshua sent to spy out Jericho. Then Joshua charged them at that time, saying, Cursed is the man before the Lord who rises up and builds the city Jericho. He shall lay its foundations with his firstborn, and with his youngest son he shall set its gates. So the Lord was with Joshua, and his fame spread throughout the country. So the spies go, are sent into the city and spare Rahab. It is kind of interesting. This is not kind of interesting. It's really interesting. God told them in Deuteronomy 7 to make no covenant with the people of the land. When you go in, do not make a covenant with them. That's Deuteronomy 7 and verse 2 and 3. And when your Lord God delivers them over to you, the seven nations greater and mightier than you, you shall conquer them and utterly destroy them. You shall make no covenants with them, nor show mercy to them. You shall not marry. And it continues. It is interesting out of all of this that Rahab and her family is spared. Because that's not what God said the plan was. And it mentions multiple times in this section why Rahab was spared. And what does it say? What is the reason given? She hid the spies. Because she hid the spies. I don't know why God did that. But it's interesting to see that God all along has looked for people of faith that are going to be willing to follow him and do what was necessary to do that. And I don't know, maybe he saw something in Rahab's heart that as she's interacting with the spies, he sees that she understands what God can do. And that she's willing to risk her life. She very well could have been killed because the people knew the spies came to her house. The king of Jericho could have very well killed her for harboring spies, especially when they weren't able to catch him. They weren't supposed to make treaty, but God showed her mercy and God showed her grace because she had faith. And we don't necessarily see the word faith here. But when you get over to Hebrews 11, by faith the walls of Jericho fell. The very next verse, by faith Rahab hid the spies. The very thing that God says saved her. Israel got the idea that they were a special nation and that meant nobody else could be in. 
And that was something you see as you read through the Old Testament, as you get to the New Testament, get through the book of Romans. There was safety and security and circumcision and being a child of Abraham. And God says, ultimately, it's not about circumcision. It's not about your nationality. It's about your heart. And are you going to be willing to do what God says? So, uh, in thinking about Rahab, it's like, so they, they took her, the family, and they placed them outside the camp of Israel. So for some period of time, they were, she was outside the camp. But then, every other time she's mentioned, it's she's dwelling in the midst of them, among them. So she's not like a, a camp follower or something who is just kind of following along the people and picking up after them or whatever. She becomes part of it. And then in Matthew 1, the genealogy of Christ, Rahab is one of the four women mentioned. So, kind of cool. Yes, through this woman, through her faith, God brought about the Messiah. God uses broken things to accomplish his purpose. And that's amazing. And so Joshua tells, if anyone tries to rebuild the city, there will be punishment. We see that happening in 1 Kings 16. That someone did try to rebuild the city and he lost his two sons, just as Joshua said. This city was meant to be consecrated to God and not be rebuilt. And that his fame spread across the country. The last thing. This is what God told him would happen if he kept true to God's word. We see that in um, Joshua 1. No man, verse 5, shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life. Be strong and have good courage. Do everything I tell you to do. Observe the law of Moses. Don't let it depart. And your way will be prosperous. Later, there would be a Yeshua that would come whose fame would spread throughout the country because he was healing because he was doing good we see that in Matthew chapter 9 verse 27 Jesus has just healed someone and his fame spreads throughout the country God uses broken things and things that don't make sense so that people don't boast in themselves that hasn't changed In 1 Corinthians 1, Paul's writing and he says, Brothers and sisters, verse 26, consider your calling. Not many were wise from a human perspective, not many powerful, not many of noble birth. Instead, God has chosen the foolish in this world to shame the wise. And God has chosen what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God has chosen what is insignificant and despised in the world, what is viewed as nothing, to bring nothing... Sorry, to bring nothing what is viewed as something, so that no one may boast in his presence. It is from him that you are in Christ Jesus, who became wisdom from God for us, our righteousness, our sanctification, our redemption, in order that it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. God chose crazy ideas, physically speaking. God chose ideas that didn't make sense, So that people, when they saw it, would not walk away thinking they saved themselves. 
but they would walk away thinking and being thankful for the God that saved them. Let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. God wanted the Israelites to show their faith by waiting, by doing things that made no sense. Not only so that they could not boast, but so that other nations could see who God is. And we see that with Rahab. She had heard of what God had done. God is amazing. And he simply asked us to believe. We sing the song, Trust and Obey. It's a difficult concept, but that's all he's seeking. Trust me, obey me, and show faith. The uh, New Testament uses the same idea in 1 Corinthians 1 about the foolishness of the gospel. And, uh, foolishness of God is wiser than man. Yes. Yes. We'll be in Genesis chapter 7. I said it again, didn't I? We'll be in Joshua 7 on Sunday.